Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 70, Norman Conquests, Giscard Seeks the Purple. It has been several episodes since we diverged away from the main Greek narrative. In fact, I feel like I have made this statement so many times that it has lost all meaning. So I went back and looked at the episode list of Season 2 and came to the conclusion that half of the entire season was dedicated to origin stories of other players. This is probably the reason why we were supposed to end the season with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, but instead, we'll be forced to end it at the beginning of the First Crusade. Needless to say, this is our final episode on the Norman Conquests, and it brings the Norman narrative crashing into the Byzantine-Roman-Greek narrative. We talked about the Norman Conquests of Southern Italy, and the Norman Conquest of Sicily, And in our last episode, we talked about the Norman Conquest of England. In this episode, we're going to talk about Robert Giscard and how he discovered his true purpose in life. It wasn't killing peasants and conquering poor municipalities from Lombard princes, although he did enjoy that. His true purpose in life was to conquer the Roman Empire. He saw the purple and he wanted it for himself. After the conquest of Palermo, the younger brother of Robert Giscard stayed on the island and eventually became the first king of Sicily. But Robert Giscard didn't care about the island, not like his younger brother. He saw the greatest prize lay beyond the sea to the east. He returned to southern Italy to complete his conquest of Byzantine-held cities in the Italian peninsula. In 1068, Robert Giscard and his Norman allies set their targets on the city of Berry, one of the last strongholds of Byzantine control in Italy. If you are familiar with the description of Italy being a foot, kicking a football, then Berry is located at the ankle. It is on the east coast of the mainland, north of Tarentum, and its harbors enter the Adriatic. It really is a beautiful city as are most Mediterranean cities. It has crystal clear blue water, great for snorkeling. If you Google pictures of it now, you'll see people paddle boarding in calm waters next to stone buildings and cathedrals, with marvelous seawalls and tourists everywhere. But a thousand years ago, it was a different story. There was no paddle boarding. Robert Giscard and his cavalry rode up to the city of Barry and found the gates to the city were closed. By this time, Robert had learned the secret to conquering a city. It was best to offer pleasing terms to the people because they would eventually become his subjects and he wanted them to be dutiful and loyal subjects. Inside the city walls, there were two main factions. The first was loyal to the Roman Empire. They were the ones who shut the gates and refused to surrender. The second faction was made up of those who sought to surrender to the Normans and live under the rule of Robert Giscard. Messengers were put on boats and sent across the Adriatic to seek help from the Roman Emperor. 
Romanus IV. The Normans attacked the walls, but were defeated by the defending Byzantines. It's hard to tell if the Byzantine soldiers here were native Greeks, or if they were just subjects of the empire and spoke Greek. But either way, the Byzantine Empire repelled these attacks. While the siege was being laid against the city of Bari, boats were supplying the city with supplies. The Greeks were holding up, but Robert Giscard wasn't going to give up so easily. He knew the secret to defeating the city was to cut them off from their supply chain. So a bridge was constructed that could destroy any boat attempting to resupply the city with food and aid. It's hard to imagine how a bridge would keep boats from docking in the ports of Bari. But if you look at the city on Google Maps, you can see the coast is fairly shallow. It would be easy to construct a pier that went out into the water, then circle it around the walls of the city. And this would create a wall on top of the water, away from the arrows of Bari, and prevent any ship from coming through. The idea does seem creative and brilliant, except for one thing. The Greeks living inside Bari set out at night and set fire to this bridge. So the seawall constructed by the Normans didn't work, and the Greeks maintained a steady supply chain of food and supplies from the homeland across the Adriatic. Fleets of ships fed the people of Bari. Meanwhile, Robert Giscard and his men attacked and defeated the remaining Byzantine holdouts in the surrounding area. Things were looking grave for the people of Bari. Famine broke out. The food supplying the city wasn't enough to keep everyone fed, and attack after attack had left the walls weakened and ready to collapse. Men were dying with every assault, and the city was suffering. Another envoy was sent to Constantinople begging for help. Another shipment of grain arrived, but it was not enough. The people needed an army to defeat the Normans, not bagels and toast. A fleet of 20 ships was dispatched from the empire and sent to defend the city of Bari, but it was intercepted by the Normans, and the fleet was scattered. All hope seemed lost. There was nothing the Byzantine Empire could do to protect its very last holding on the mainland of Italy. In April 1071, Bari officially surrendered to the Normans. The very last city of the Byzantine Empire surrendered, and the Roman Empire was kicked out of Italy forever. Initially, the Greek resistors were imprisoned, but once Robert Giscard had complete control of the city, he allowed the Byzantine POWs to return to the empire. If you read Wikipedia, they say that this period marks the end of a 536-year period of Byzantine control over Italy. But if the Byzantine Empire is the Roman Empire, then does that mean it was a 1,700-year reign of control? Are we counting the Roman Empire or Greek colonists? The colony of Taranto was founded by Spartans in 706 BC. Does this date mark the beginning of Greek dominance in the area? If the Byzantine Empire is the Roman Empire, then does this mean the foundation of Roman control over the Italian peninsula starts at the foundation of Rome as a city? Because that would place the beginning of Italian occupation at 753 BC. 
That would mean the surrender of Barry marked the end of Roman control of Italy after 1,800 years. It's all very confusing. The long struggle between Normans and Greeks in Italy was finally over. Norman knights were free to reign across the peninsula. The Norman knights turned their attention north and raided the Papal States. These brutal men were not going to stop conquering because they now had a piece of their own land. They were a war machine, and their targets were refocused. There was an agreement made between the Normans and the Pope some 20 years before, but that agreement was shoddy at best. The Pope recognized them as the rightful rulers of Calabria, but now that the Normans had spread and grown in numbers and were taking gold directly from the land controlled by the papacy, the Pope could no longer tolerate them. Follow the money. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. In 1073, Gregory VII became the Pope in Rome, and he immediately sought a meeting with Robert Giscard. Now, Robert Giscard by this point was the most powerful man in southern Italy maybe all of Italy. And there was nothing the Pope could offer that would benefit him. The Pope was weak, trapped between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Normans. So Robert Giscard refused to meet with him, and this obviously infuriated the Pope, and he had Robert Giscard excommunicated. The Pope knew he couldn't just excommunicate Robert Giscard, he needed to defeat him. The Pope called for an army of holy men from France to help him fight the rising Duke Giscard. But no one came to his aid. The Pope was left alone, with the psychopathic Robert Giscard and his violent knights on his doorstep. Robert Giscard was not concerned with the Pope in Rome, as he was no threat to the Normans, and instead focused his attention on the last stronghold of Lombard princes in the regions. In 1076, Robert Giscard conquered the city of Salerno, ridding the southern peninsula of all those who opposed him. Robert Giscard now had supreme control of southern Italy. The Byzantines were expelled, and the Lombards were subjugated, and the Pope was made irrelevant. One thing that Robert Giscard discovered during his conquests was the vast richness of the Byzantine Empire. He admired their wealth and their prestige, but he was mostly drawn to their luxury of the purple. It is said that by this time he was wearing the purple robes of an emperor. Robert Giscard was not happy nor content with his new kingdom in southern Italy. He wanted the golden apple. He wanted to take the entire Byzantine Empire for himself, and so 
he prepared an invasion. The Pope and Robert Giscard made up in the most empty way possible. The Pope knew there was no one left to save him, and that he better make peace with Robert Giscard. And so the Norman Conqueror agreed to serve the Pope in exchange for being unexcommunicated, and even went as far as promising to, maybe, someday, giving back the lands of the Papal States he had stolen, if he felt like it. It was a match made in heaven. Now Robert Giscard was able to focus his entire military power on the land that lay to the east of the Adriatic, to the last vestiges of the Roman Empire. Robert Giscard saw the Roman Empire was weakened and offered his daughter's hand in marriage to the current Roman Emperor's son, who was only a child at the time. Her name was Olympia, which was a distinct Greek name. The marriage proposal was meant to bring stability between the Greco-Roman Byzantine Empire and the ever-growing Normans. A tribute was sent to the Normans from the Romans, but before the emperor's son came of age to marry, a civil war broke out in the Roman Empire, and a new emperor took the throne. This quashed the deal between Robert Giscard and the Roman Empire. In 1080, a man claiming to be the deposed emperor traveled across the Adriatic and sought aid from Robert Giscard. It's pretty obvious to us now that this man was not the real Michael VII, deposed emperor, but was simply an impostor looking to gain from the turmoil. Whether or not this was a man simply trying to worm his way into power, or if this was just a ploy used by Robert Giscard to give him a reason to attack the empire, we will never know. But this is the reason Robert Giscard used to launch his invasion of the empirical mainland. Robert Giscard sent messengers to all of the Normans in southern Italy. The letters read as follows. We're going to launch an invasion against the Roman Empire, and we will reimpose Michael VII to his rightful place as emperor. This is paraphrasing, of course, but what really happened was the amassing of Norman soldiers from all the realms of southern Italy. Every available fighting knight and ship was brought together. Robert Giscard's mighty army was consolidated and ready for war. It is estimated that Robert Giscard had 700 heavy-armored knights and 1,500 infantry soldiers ferried across the Adriatic. They traveled in Byzantine-style ships, either captured in previous conquests or were built off the designs from captured ships. Robert Giscard's son, Bohemond, led the first wave and landed on the island of Corfu, which is a small island in the east of mainland Greece, very close to modern-day Albania. Bohemond was a fierce warrior who was over six feet tall and styled as your typical Norman warrior, not too different from the Viking warlords of old. Bohemond was quickly joined by his father, and the siege of the island city took place. Soon after, the island of Corfu fell to the Norman warriors, giving them a landing point to carry out the rest of their invasion. The Normans were now in the Balkans, and the invasion of Greece was underway. The Normans now had a foothold in the Byzantine Empire, and they set their targets on the city of Dyrrhachium. 
Dyrrhachium was known as the greatest Roman city in the west of the Balkans, and its position allowed them to control the entire peninsula. As Robert Giscard's fleet sailed up to the coast of the mainland, a storm hit the Normans, and many ships were lost to sea. This may have felt like God trying desperately to save the Greeks from the Norman invasion, but it failed to destroy every ship. When the Normans finally landed on the mainland, hundreds of cavalry and thousands of infantry disembarked their ships. They surrounded the city of Dyrrhachium, which was fortified by great stone walls. The Normans who came to the outskirts of Dyrrhachium found an abandoned town and used it to set up camp. There, they planned the siege of Dyrrhachium. But the Roman Empire was not completely alone. They sent messages to the Republic of Venice and asked for aid against the Normans. The Venetians were also threatened by the rise of the Normans and were more than happy to help out. They sent hundreds of vessels down the Adriatic to help with the siege against Dyrrhachium. The Norman fleet that blockaded the city of Dyrrhachium was soon met by the Venetian naval fleet. The Normans launched attacks against the walls of Dyrrhachium, but were repelled by the Byzantine army. All of the siege engines pushed up against the city walls were burnt to the ground by the defending Greek soldiers. It seemed as though the battle was at a draw, but very soon the Venetian ships arrived to relieve the Greek city. There are both Greek and Latin sources that depict this naval encounter, but what seems to be the truth is that the Venetian ships engaged the Norman fleet in a crescent-shaped formation with a center further back. Kind of like a horseshoe. So when the two fleets met, the Normans were surrounded by the front and two sides. Once they got within striking distance, the Venetian ships blasted the Normans with Greek fire and sunk the Norman ships to the bottom of the sea. This was a devastating defeat for Robert Giscard, and the ships that ferried his men to the Balkans were now destroyed trapping him in the Balkans. The land surrounding the city of Dyrrhachium was mostly swampland, very humid and damp. Now that they were cut off from supplies, the soldiers started to succumb to hunger and disease. The mosquitoes ate at the men, and disease spread throughout the ranks. While the Normans waited outside of the walls, the Byzantine Empire was gathering a coalition of soldiers to repel the Normans from the Balkans. The Roman Emperor Alexios led the charge. The Byzantine army arrived in October and set up camp north of the city. Dyrrhachium was a city that lay at the end of a peninsula, and the land immediately surrounding it was all swamp. That is where the Normans camped. And beyond the swamp, the great Byzantine army now camped pinching the Normans between the stone walls and the iron spears of the Byzantine army. The Normans were stuck. There was no food available to them, and there was no way of escape. The smartest move would have been to let them starve to death until they surrendered. But there were many young generals within the Roman army who thought the best and most honorable decision was to engage the Normans in a pitched battle. So the army marched out from their camp and circled around to meet the Normans from the east on the other side of the lagoon. 
But Robert Giscard saw what his enemy was doing. He knew this was the final battle, so he decided to make it clear to all of his men that there was no option to surrender or escape. He burnt all of his ships on the shores of Dyrrachium. He was telling his men that today they fight and win, or today they fight and die. There was no other option. In the cover of nightfall, Robert Giscard moved his men into formation. He positioned his army on the battlefield and commanded the center of the line. His son Bohemond led the left flank, and a knight named Amacitus led the right flank. Robert Giscard made sure to pack his armored cavalry in the center. And when the sun rose the next morning, the Normans were ready to fight. The Roman army was also ready to fight, and just like Robert Giscard, Emperor Alexios was commanding the center line. The Roman army had the Varangian guard, and as they came from the same bloodline as the Normans, were a formidable force. Some of these Varangian guards were also Anglo-Saxon warriors, veterans of the Battle of Hastings from 1066, who were defeated by the Norman William the Conqueror. They had been driven from their homeland by Normans and now sought vengeance. They were eager to spill Norman blood. The two armies stared at each other from across the battlefield. But the calm was quickly disrupted when Robert Giscard ordered a group of cavalry to attack the Varangians at the front. The entire Norman army watched as this small contingent of knights rode across the field and provoked the Anglo-Saxon Varangians. But the Varangians were disciplined and held their tight formations. And soon after, a division of archers from the rear of the Roman army advanced and pelted the Normans with arrows, forcing them to retreat back to the main army. Now was the time to act. The Norman army slowly advanced across the battlefield. Meanwhile, the bulk of mercenaries behind the Roman Empire, which were made up of Turks and Serbs, waited and watched. They were not specifically loyal to the Roman Empire as much as they were loyal to the gold that paid them. And they wanted to wait and see which side had the upper hand. Now what a terrible state to be in. Imagine if this happened in any modern day war. Imagine if the Canadians and Australians waited and watched the British and Americans fighting against the Nazis, waiting to see which side got the upper hand first so they could choose which side to support. Suddenly, the Norman right flank exploded from the line and charged the Varangian guard in the center, smashing into them. The fighting was brutal, and the Anglo-Saxons were hit very hard, but they managed to stay together and held their formation. They pushed back against the Normans and managed to get them back into line as archers from behind pelted the Normans with arrows. Robert Giscard ordered a full attack, and the center and left flank charged the Romans. And as their left flank fell back, thousands of arrows flew through the sky and pelted the Norman soldiers. At this point, the Norman line and Byzantine line collided, and sword fighting began. 
It was hand-to-hand combat, sword against sword, horse against horse. The two armies fought against each other with no side giving in. Meanwhile, the Varangian Guard had pushed the Normans so far back that they found themselves far behind the main battle lines. Ooh, I think I've heard this story before. Robert Giscard, sitting on top of his horse, saw this. He looked over his shoulder and saw his right flank had been pushed right back to the coast. This was an opportunity. The bloodthirsty Varangian guard had chased the Normans so far south that they were now behind enemy lines. And so he ordered a group of his own detachment to turn around from the main fighting to pursue the enemy now behind him. The Anglo-Saxons had fought hard and strong and exhausted all of their strength against the Norman right flank. And had they been their only enemy on the battlefield, they might have prevailed. But they were taken completely by surprise when a fresh contingent of soldiers arrived at their rear and pelted them with arrows. Yeah, because they got their shields ahead of them, mm-hmm. and now they're getting... And they're tired. Yeah. You turn around, now your formation's gone. Yeah, they're just a bunch of men standing there. Screwed up. Major screwed up. The poor Varangians, the Anglo-Saxons who were veterans of the Battle of Hastings, who were bloodthirsty for revenge, had pushed their enemies so far behind the battlefield were met with an attack of enemy arrows and swords and spears from their rear. They were exhausted and spent and quickly fell to the onslaught of the Normans. Every Anglo-Saxon died on the battlefield that day. There were a few who survived the initial onslaught and fled to a nearby church where they sought sanctuary. But the Normans surrounded the church and set the building on fire, killing everyone inside. Wow. What a picture. (laughs) I can just, I can picture it. I know. (laughs) I can just picture it. The Normans then rejoined the main battlefield and pushed against the doomed Roman forces. The momentum was now on Robert Giscard's side. Being a man of strategy, Robert Giscard kept his best knights out of the fighting. They had been watching the entire battle unfold. And now, at the very end, they were unleashed. The knights charged into the exhausted and tired Roman army, and they slaughtered everyone in their path. The bravest of the Roman soldiers stood and fought, and they were the first to die. The rest turned and ran. They were chased down and pelted with arrows. Many were killed while the rest escaped into the countryside. The Roman Emperor himself was chased down by Norman cavalry and barely escaped with his life. In a future episode, we will tell this story from the perspective of the Emperor Alexios, written by Anna Comnene. She describes his escape in quite detail no doubt having heard the story firsthand from her father on numerous occasions. But we will save that for a later episode. This battle was devastating for both sides of the conflict. The Roman Empire lost 5,000 men on the battlefield, while the Norman casualties were equally as vast. This battle did not mean the defeat of the city of Dyrrhachium, The siege went on for four more months before a Latin soldier finally opened the gates and allowed Robert Giscard and his men to enter triumphantly. Robert Giscard 
was now on the mainland of Greece, and his target was set firmly on the capital of the Roman Empire. We have now brought the origin story of the Normans right up to the doorstep of the Greek world. The Normans are for all intents and purposes in Greece. And Emperor Alexios is now facing a full-scale Norman invasion of his empire. If this was the only threat to the Romans at this time, we would return to the Greek main narrative. But the same onslaught was happening on the eastern front of the Byzantine Empire. Only this attack was coming from a nomadic Turkic tribe known as the Seljuk Turks. In our next episode, we will return with the Turkic origin story. We will dedicate several episodes to explaining exactly who the Turks are, where they come from, and how they brought the Byzantine Empire to its knees. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>